Welcome to the Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. Hi, I'm Bela Musitz, coming to you from the Capital Region campus of Clarkson University in Schenectady, New York. I'm a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and now the retired David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Clarkson University. And coming to you from Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoy listening to us as much as we've enjoyed putting this together. Many of you ask why we do this, and it's certainly not to make money. Uh, The two of us both like to learn from smart and interesting people about how the world is changing and specifically how innovation and entrepreneurship are changing. We overlay our observations and compare them with the lessons that we've both learned over three plus decades as entrepreneurs, investors, managers, and professors. To do this, we've put together our network of interesting friends, former students, and business partners along with other people we've met more recently to bring you interesting stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the people that take unconventional paths to find happiness at work and in life. So today's guest is Michael Wachholder. Michael has had a wonderful, wonderful career uh, that uh, started with uh, uh, being actually one of the key people's and uh, key... Scratch all that. Today's guest is Michael Wachholder. Michael is a wonderful person who uh, actually hired me to run the business incubator at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And uh, so he was my boss for a long period of time. And uh, so you're going to learn many things about him and and myself uh, in this conversation we had because it was two old friends getting together and talking about uh, life and uh, how life can change and how life goes on. Uh, Mike uh, has had a great career, and he was one of the key individuals in the uh, formation of uh, and the evolution of technology parks, incubators, accelerators, and the entrepreneurship efforts that uh, happen at universities. So this was a long conversation, and uh, we're going to do this in two parts. Uh, So this week, we're releasing part one, uh, where we're going to focus on tech parks, incubators, accelerators. Uh, entrepreneurship, uh, a few other topics. And then next week, we'll release part two, uh, where we're going to talk about uh, being a lifelong learner, how to be a good boss, uh, the role of mentors, uh, both being a mentee and a mentor, and uh, how life can all of a sudden change. So let's jump right into part one of my conversation with Mike Wachholder. Hello, listeners. Uh, Bela here. Today, I am here uh, with absolutely one of my favorite persons, Uh, only one of my favorite persons, but the best damn boss I ever had in my whole career. And uh, I've had a lot of bosses. Uh, I'm here today with Mike Wachholder, who hired me uh, into RPI to run the business incubator uh, probably close to 20 years ago now, if not more. And uh, Mike has been a great inspiration to many people. Uh, he's helped many entrepreneurs. Uh, he's been uh, pivotal in the uh, university-based technology park industry, the university-based incubator industry, and uh, just a great all-around person. So I thought he'd be a wonderful, wonderful person to interview today. So welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you. Thank you for such a nice introduction. You always say that about me being your best boss. I still don't believe it, but I'm flattered. I'm very much flattered. Well, you should be flattered, but don't let it go to your head because uh, uh, it, it's not a high standard. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I do have a comment, maybe later, as to what makes a good boss. Why you probably say what you say. Well, don't yeah, say it now. This is a good place to start. Go ahead and dive into that. Because I've been thinking about that because I, I suspect that you bring it up again. And I never, I don't think I ever for a day thought about Bela as my employee or as I thought about me as his boss. It was what made us work and uh, well, what made it work so well was because we were colleagues and constantly colleagues without any, you know, without any hierarchy. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it immensely. And it became sort of a one of the standards I used to apply to people I like to work with. You know, I don't want to work as boss and employee. I want to work with colleagues. And Bale exemplifies that. We had a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Yeah, we, sh- we sure did. And, and I think that was a great characterization of how that relationship existed. And, you know, I think back upon the many different jobs I've had and... Uh, there's a few times where it really just clicks for whatever reason, right? The right chemistry, the right personalities, the right environment, all of those things. And they're pretty few and far between. And uh, certainly when we work together on a daily basis, uh, it was wonderful. So Mike, uh, you uh, had an illustrious career and, and you were pivotal in, in founding uh, university-based technology park and a university-based incubator, business incubator. Uh, So for those folks who might not know what a tech park is, could you expound on that a little bit? Well, a tech park, simply stated, is a place for technology. Um, In our case, and many cases since then, and even a few before then, is a place for university-connected technology. The university being a major draw to the park for companies that want to lean on the university's expertise, its research, its students, and its faculty. And we were dedicated to building those connections. And I think that's the underlying factor that made our project so successful. Um, It's that simple. So we began to attract many companies, but we also began to grow companies. And that was something we didn't really think of until we were exploring the feasibility of the tech park. And one of our trustees, actually two of them, kind of were, we had a committee of trustees overseeing the park and helping to helping to determine if it's feasible. But they both said, you know, we're, we're on the threshold here of committing millions of dollars in the building of a tech park. We have to find a way for far less money to test the concept, to validate the concept. And they they toyed around with that. And one of those two guys, actually Harry Upkarian, who's a local legend um, and an entrepreneur, um, and for me, a, um, a wonderful uh, mentor. Anyway, he suggested the idea. He says, look, why don't we create an incubator? Why don't we look at the campus find technology that look like they'll work in the marketplace and help foster those technologies and the people surrounding them into a business. And everyone jumped on that as a great idea. And they concluded that if the incubator worked, the technology will, the tech park will work. So they said, they turned to me, 
I was frightened half to death because I barely knew what incubators were. And they said, Mike, get it going. And so um, I got it going. I, I turned to the university and got a couple of people to work with me, Ray Lancaster, one of them who's a, who was our treasurer and a genius, and Pierre Abetti, another one who was a, a faculty member and former GE guy, um, a faculty member in um, teaching management. And we had the core of it. And me, I'm a, I'm a bricks and mortar kind of guy. So the three of us, then we added more and more people, but we got the program going and as a small committee, and we jumped on a few ideas, on a few people at the university with ideas, a couple of students in one case, some faculty in other cases, and suddenly, before we could turn around, the incubator was flourishing, and I was becoming frantic to find enough available space on campus. Part of the success of our incubator was the the location of the incubator had to be close to or on the campus so that the connection really worked. You could leave your classroom and walk to your business. And um, we expanded from a piece of one building to a piece of another building, et cetera, et cetera, until we really knew we had something good. And then we found a home for the incubator right on the edge of campus. And what what year... Well, first of all, let's put this in the context. Of, um, I can't. I'm not sure if we mentioned this or not, but this was at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, also known as RPI. Uh, and what year did the whole tech park thing kind of start up? Um, the, well, it started up two ways. Number one, a rather extensive, timely, or long-term effort to determine its feasibility. That included getting the incubator going, and then two, when we broke ground, and the feasibility study started in maybe in 1979. I think it was actually January 79. Started talking about it in late 78. That's 1978, 79. Um, that seems right now like a long time ago. And the incubator was really born in 1980. So there's your time frame. Okay, excellent. And uh, so as as you were... Let's take a step back. So that sort of puts the context uh, for the overall conversation we want to have here. But I, I want to take the clock back to uh, Michael Wachholder in high school. So what was, uh, what was Michael Wachholder like in high school? Were you always entrepreneurial driven? Did you sort of have, is there entrepreneurship in the family? Uh, I, if you want me to be honest or you want me to tell fibs. <laughs> Uh, the the microphone doesn't know which one you're doing. <laughs> Only you do. In sh short, I'll sum it up by saying I was a naive nerd, a real nerd. I wasn't really um, focused on any kind of career. Entrepreneurship was a term that I didn't even have in my vocabulary. At Probably the time. hadn't been invented yet. Yeah, and had it been, I couldn't have spell. Wouldn't be able to spell it. Um, so in some respects, but even when I go back and reflect on my childhood, I did do things that you would classify as entrepreneurial. You know, little jobs. We have, I have an uncle who lives in Walnut Creek, California, and a very successful builder, developer. 
and Walnut Creek, you could guess, got its name from walnut trees. And my dad, we lived on a peninsula in San Mateo, across the bay from Walnut Creek. And my dad would drive us over to Uncle Dave's place, and me and my brother and a few neighbors would go, and we'd pick walnuts all day long. And then we'd bring them back to our house, and we'd husk them all day long another day, and put them in paper bags, and then we'd go around the neighborhood and sell them. And the trademark of our success was if you ever mess around with a walnut, it has, over the shell of a walnut, is a green husk. And we had to take that husk off. And it stains anything it touches, including your hands. And we had green hands for weeks. (laughs) But that was one of my early entrepreneurial endeavors. And another thing we did was... In where I lived in San Mateo, kind of a real suburban community, streets, curbs, and sidewalks, one thing that people used to do is paint on the face of the curb and the top of the curb their address. So we went out and bought stencils, and we would go up and down the block, and the block next to us, and all around, and we would sell you know, the ability, we would paint addresses on people's curbs. That was another money maker we did. I could probably come up with more, but I hadn't thought about those two things for years. Oh, that's great. Those are great stories. You know, lots of people I, I talk to an interview on, on this podcast, um, many of them have stories like that from their childhood where they took the initiative for something and, and they made something out of it. Whether they made money at it or not doesn't matter. That's not the point. But they, they sort of took the initiative and they did something with that initiative. You know, they took the first step and they acted and they moved in that direction and and they had something at the end that they could point to and uh, as an accomplishment so uh what happened after high school um after high school i got admitted to the university of california berkeley and i was i was just thrilled about that but i hadn't entirely lost my naive nerd self-image um and i didn't do very well at all and Cal, Cal, they used to say, and it scared me to death, was that look to your left, look to your right, and one of those people on either side of you will flunk out. Well, I was on somebody's left or somebody's right. <laughs> and I did very poorly. I got all caught up in the freedoms of, of university life. So what year was this at Berkeley? Um, 1960. So it's sort of the uh, yeah, apex the, of uh, the middle a of lot the, of things to get caught up in. Well, but, you know, again, remember, I was a nerd. And I was in the middle of the free speech movement. And I didn't, I was so nerdy, I didn't understand it very well. And now as I look back and I reflect on that, those guys, the free speech movement in those days, they were, they changed the world. They really made a difference, and now I understand it. But anyway, so it was a very liberal place, brilliant people, and a couple of nerds. And so... Um, from there, I was humiliated. It was a life lesson, though. If you ask me what's the most important life lesson you ever had, I would say probably having to leave Berkeley and go to a local community college, which I did. And I suddenly grew up. And I went to the community college and excelled there, got all A's. And I did so well for one year of school. I got a scholarship back to Cal. And... And then at that time, I discovered what I wanted to do. 
and Cal had a wonderful program in landscape architecture, and I enrolled in that, and there was no looking back ever since. So, what was that? Did that uh, desire to do landscape architecture did did that come at a moment, or was that a result of you being exposed to that in some way, or sort of how did that epiphany happen? Good question. I wish I knew. Um, part of it was because architecture was too dependent on strong math skills at the time and I knew I couldn't survive that and so landscape architecture was not and it just looked good but also I've always had an admiration and a love and a fascination with the with the natural environment and um, I just I was attracted to it as soon as I discovered that there was there was really a curriculum about it and as a kid I, I worked in landscape work, you know, and so I was familiar with a lot, you know, grounds, maintenance, and planting things and all that. So it came natural and I loved it. Yeah. I loved it and there was no looking back. I was mature and I did very well from there on. And so then you graduated from uh, Cal or Berkeley as it's also known. And uh, then what happened? Well then, um, I, I lived in San Mateo, my family did, and at the time I was living in Berkeley. And during that period, it was really a period of um, new town development. You know, you know, they were springing up around Washington D.C. and around California, and right adjacent to San Mateo was this new town, a city called Foster City, and that was literally being just in the beginning stages. And I was lucky. I got a job with the engineering firm that was located in the middle of that new town and the only office building that was there <clears throat> and they were the firm that was designing and overseeing construction of Foster City and that was my first job it was wonderful why participating in the development of the city so are these like uh, help me understand this a little bit are these sort of like planned communities planned cities totally totally and I, I occasionally when I'm in California, I'll go there. It's totally built. It has a population exceeding, I think, thirty or 40,000 people. And it's wonderful, you know, to think that you were there when it was mostly dirt. Um, so it was very well. Every inch of it was planned. And it was right on the shores of San Francisco Bay. And the whole uh, storm drainage system was based upon building canals throughout Foster City, so many of the, most of the homes had a canal in their backyard, and the canals functioned as um, the stormwater system that could drain into, drain into the bay. So it was quite clever from an engineering point of view, and I learned a lot. I also learned how to work, because then suddenly you're accountable for your time. You know, time is money, and, um, you know, you learn real quick when your boss says, why isn't that done yet? And I can remember a few of those. And I really, you know, I learned a lot. So let me go on from there for because I know what you'll ask next. While there, I worked with two guys that stood out. One guy was director of the planning department. And the other guy, as I recall, was an engineer. And suddenly they left the company. And I was shattered, you know because they were great um, mentors. And they went to a university in Texas called Texas A&M University 
to develop. They were invited to come there and to start a program, a master's program in planning, urban and regional planning. So as they were prepared to leave, I said, hey guys, um, be honest, we're friends. So if, if you got something going that's really good, I would like to join you. I've always dreamed about a master's degree in planning because that's the logical extension of landscape on a larger scale. And um, I'll call you. Let's see how it's going. And they responded. They'd love to have me. And um, about a year later, I was working in San Francisco for a famous architect, John Carl Warnicke. Probably no one around anymore that knows of him, but in his day, he was the big banana. And um, and that was pretty, you know, most people, my friends and family thought that was a, a real career-enhancing opportunity. And it was a Monday. I got a call from these two guys. They're on the phone. They said, Mike, where are you? I said, what do you mean where I am? I'm sitting in San Francisco at the office. And they said, you're supposed to be here. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you're enrolled for this semester. It's already started. You're not there. You're late. I said, well, you must have told everybody but me. <laughs> and it was a Monday. <clears throat> and they said, if you can get here by Thursday, we can keep you in a program for this semester. So I went home and told my wife I quit. Warnicke's firm pack me up, I'm leaving, and you quit your job and join me as soon as you can. And I flew off to Texas A&M, and that was cultural shock. I had no idea Texas A&M was a military school. I had no idea what Texas looked like in the middle of winter. It was just, I look out, I can always remember looking out the window, <clears throat> and everything was brown from the plane. Um, but anyway, it was a wonderful opportunity to be in there. And I did a lot there besides going to school. I got working with the provost on uh, campus planning for the university. And then he got a grant for the A&M system to write guidelines for the whole system. If you look on that wall right there, Bela, is a flyer for a book he and I wrote about guidelines for planning in universities. And so I did that. I worked on my master's degree. <clears throat> and I worked for a local planner designing subdivisions. So I was a busy boy. But I was doing what I loved. You couldn't hold me back. And I was developing an expertise in land design and in, um, um, well, lands. I had it in my head a minute ago. Uh -huh. But I developed some interesting, you know, and planning in general. And, and in a university environment, yeah, too, right? Yeah. Which is slightly different than the public sector, which is different than the private sector. Yes, indeed, you're correct. Yeah. So it was it was a unbelievable experience. And um, our book was very successful. And around the book, the A&N system sponsored a conference for all the schools to talk about principles and planning. And so myself and the provost were the main presenters. And people came from all over the country. Um, one guy that came was the head of a big effort in New York State at the time, which was the late 60s, a guy named Tony Adnolfi. And he was to uh, Governor Rockefeller's man to build the SUNY system 
the State University of New York. And, you know, he ran a design, you know, a, a system that designed and built either new universities in a system or significantly expanded universities in, in the system. And he came up to me and we introduced each other and he said, would you come to New York and consider working for me? I said, I don't know about that, but I'd love to go to New York. And so oh, a couple of weeks later, I flew to New York and I, I met him and I'll never forget that interview and it was wonderful. And he had, as we were um, talking, sitting on his desk in front of him was my book. And for some reason it was turned to the title page. And on the title page was my name and the provost's name. And my name was circled in red. I never forgot that. So I figured I had a pretty good chance on the job. <laughs> <laughs> and in its day, the state it was called the State University Construction Fund. And it was the hottest architectural and development program in the country. Um, a multi, multi-million dollar program. Actually, a, as I recall, a two or three billion dollar yeah. investment by New York State. A huge uh, expansion. Yeah. And I was in charge at the time when I took the job for the planning, campus planning, on 16 of the then 32 campuses. So that was... That was a great experience. And, and geographically, where was this located? In Albany. In Albany. So you go I moved from, Albany. You go from California and Berkeley and San Mateo, was it? Yep. To Texas. Texas in, A&M is where? In uh, um, Bryan, Texas, and uh, College Station. College Station, which yeah. is sort of... It's a little tiny town, and it was really something. Yeah, from there but, to But Albany. one thing I learned... Is universities are universities, mm. and the university environment is a rich, intellectual, challenging environment. Um, and then from there, I went to Albany, New York, which was still in the post-industrial era of decadent, decaying industry, and that was a shock too. But to be associated with Tony Adnolfi and this enormous initiative of New York State, and um, in campus planning. I couldn't have asked for more. So, to, as I reflect back on what you've said here in, in the last few minutes, is you, you were part of one of the first uh, towns that sort of starts with a blank sheet of paper and gets developed. And, and we're not talking a, a hundred unit housing development, we're talking about a whole city, yep. right? Uh, from there to Texas A&M to, to, to build out a, a whole program there and, and, and work there and write a book to then... Oh, but I didn't say one of my responsibilities while there was work developing a master plan for Texas A&M. In addition to the expansion yeah, and the, the big study. Yeah. And then to Albany, New York, to help state of New York expand their state university yep, system. Yep. So you were really involved in a lot of firsts. Well, I guess... Um, I doubt I thought of it that way in the day, in the day, but reflecting back, you're absolutely right. Yeah, so you were a real pioneer in those in those types of uh, university builds out, build out, and and the engagement of the university with the business community. Very important, very important point, um, and that particularly became important as we developed the RPI Park. 
Um, so how'd you end up at, at RPI from uh, from State University? You're always ahead of me, Bela. Um, that's why we work so well together. I always knew, but I never admit how much smarter he was than I. But anyway, when I was interviewing with that man, Tony Adnolfi, my first ever trip to New York, I was sitting there, I said, you know something, while at A&M, which I didn't mention to you yet, I had the opportunity to teach architecture. And um, I worked with other faculty teaching design. And I loved it. And I said, and I, I, it's something that's in me, you know. And are there any schools of architecture in this area that I could affiliate with? And he said, are you kidding? Uh, RPI is here, the best school of architecture in the Northeast. I said, what's RPI? I, 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 I shouldn't say this, but it's honest. I never heard of RPI as a smart aleck. Californian, where you think the whole world revolves around the the state and the university there. Anyway, he said he got on the phone immediately, called a few people, and called his driver, and had me chauffeured to RPI that afternoon to meet the dean of architecture and a few of the faculty, and that started a relationship with RPI, which became a teaching opportunity. And that became eventually a full-time opportunity where I worked with the Dean of Architecture and we did a master plan for RPI. Which that, and remember, this is in the, let's think about this, the early 70s, I guess, when RPI was looking at growth, but none of the current campus, you know, the new things were there then. And so we developed a master plan for RPI. Me and this other professor, who became dean, um, uh, who was one of the guys I met that day I was sent over to campus. And that teaching relationship was for several years. So, interesting, that was our first overlap because I was at RPI, I graduated in 75 and 76, so I, I'm not sure I ever realized this before, but you were, you were there when I was a student there. Luckily, you didn't take any of my courses. Uh, I, I wasn't an architect. I remember those were all the people walking around with cardboard models of everything under yeah, their arms. But by then, I might have been teaching. We had a program, a graduate program there in our, um, urban and regional planning, headed up by a guy named Paul Zuber, a local legend. And Zuber wanted me to teach for him. So my teaching in architecture evolved by the middle 70s into becoming uh, a standard course I offered in his curriculum and planning. And that was very interesting. <coughs> that was a good opportunity. More growth, you know, more experience in the broader world of planning. Now I'll tell you one quick story and then I think I'm taking too much of your time. Um, I also got involved at RPI in some administrative work. And while that's always um, a challenge, it wasn't me, as you could tell from all the things I had been doing. And I didn't like it one bit. So the vice president at the school was a pretty good friend of mine then. And I went to him one day and I said, Alan, I'm leaving. I can't take it. This is administrative work. And he says, oh my God. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute promise just to hold your thoughts for a couple of weeks and I'll get back to you because something's cooking you're the guy 
I said, all right, I'll give you a couple of weeks, but my mind is pretty well made up. And later on he called me, he said, Mike, I want you to see the president of RBI. And the president then was George Lowe, the famous George Lowe, the man who had was a key contributor to putting man on the moon. And just to be called in his office is a you know, career um, highlight. And when I got in there, he told me about this idea he had to build a tech park on land owned by the university in a nearby town, North Greenbush, where RPI owned 1,200 acres. And by the time he got done telling me this image, this vision he had, you know, I bought in. Um, it was terrific. And he asked me if I would do, um, for him, I would do a feasibility study of the concept of a tech park on his 1,200 acres of land. And I said, it sounds very exciting, I'd be delighted. And that will keep me here at RPI. And then I'll never forget, even though we're taping this and you can't see me, he sat in his chair and he shook his finger at me. He said, but Mike, it's only a six-month appointment. Get it done six months. And I said, okay, that's six months longer before I have to make a move. And that grew into um, roughly a 30-year experience building the park, the incubator, and entrepreneurship programs on campus that meeting with George Lowe. And in those days, to work for George Lowe, you know, that, that was a career opportunity few people ever had. And he was a, a, um, a real leader and a real spark plug. So anyway, now I'm um, still on campus, but I'm developing a master plan and a feasibility study for the tech work. And that took more. That took about a year. Mm -hmm. And I worked with a group, a, a committee of trustees. Actually, it was a George was a really smart guy. It was a committee of trustees and representatives from the student body, representatives of the alumni alumni body, and representatives of the faculty. And we put together a plan. And, um, and during that time was when the incubator was invented, literally invented by Harry Upkarian and Ken Lally. So if any people are listening to this who are local and have been around for a while, those two names will bring you back, Upkarian and Lally. And out of that feasibility study and wanting to test the feasibility of an expensive idea, the incubator was born. So um, the rest is sort of history and my six months turned into a 30-year experience. And when, when you retired a few years ago, bridge us from 30 years ago when there was, uh, how many acres did you say? 1,200. 1,200 acres of vacant land, basically, to what the tech park is now. Can you describe the tech park in some sort of set of parameters for us? Um, what it is now or what it was then? What it is now. What it was then was uh, just vacant land, right? Um, I, I'll struggle a little bit here because I've been away from it now for seven or eight years, but the park, the, tobog the topography of the park is magnificent. It's on an upland area of rolling hillsides, um, upland of the Hudson River. But between the Hudson River, there's a little bit of land, oh, 100 acres or so, that's marsh and floodplain. And then it suddenly rises up in a very steep escarpment and then it levels off and it's kind of rolling hills and lots of forest and so 
there were huge limitations on what we could do on those 1,200 acres. We couldn't touch the wetlands. We couldn't touch the um, hillside, the escarpment. And there are ravines working their way down to the river, very steep and deep and wooded ravines. And it's those physical factors of the site that really sort of dictated the plan for the campus, the uh, Tech Park campus. And so the Tech Park kind of weaves and dodges between those ravines, on those upland slopes and beautiful lands there. And we made a real effort and part of that, I think, is my background in wanting to preserve beautiful oak forests and not touch ravines. Um, and so we had, uh, you know, we had designated lots of areas around the park as as um, untouchable, and and then other areas that began to define itself as development zones. And so when you drive around the park now, it's still characterized by lots of woods and trees. And, you know, just a beautiful sense of environment. And we tried really hard to preserve that. And if you run into any people that knew me back then, they'll tell you real, real crazy stories about me and about my obsession with the trees and how they couldn't touch a tree unless I gave them permission. And there's some trees that, you know, that are still there that people wanted to take that I dedicated to some of the trustees that I worked with. But anyway, long story, but I don't know if that, you really have to drive through it to get the feel. But it feels like a park. Yeah. Renso Technology Park is a place for technology, a park place for technology. And it was really a combination of both. And, and here again, you know, you were doing this in the late 70s uh, when it wasn't uh, standard practice to save all the trees and basically standard practice in those days was to go in and level everything and including some of the ravines and fill in the ravines and you know make a nice level piece of land and build so uh, you're out in the forefront there again so well, <clears throat> what's the go ahead I'm sorry I didn't mean to cut you off no I mean to call that the forefront and maybe you're right um, but to me it was just a logical proper thing to do yeah you know to respect the environment and do it to share it, you know, in a planned way with the people that are inhabiting the area. So they're both yeah. the two, the, the two could beautifully coexist. And sort of, how big is the tech park now? Number of square feet under roof well, or however you man, however I'm you I'm too far that. away, I'm too far away. When I left, it was about a million and a quarter square feet. Um, and I think the park proper occupies about five or six hundred of the twelve hundred acres, mm -hmm. and and um, um, designated open space was at least three or four hundred acres. Yeah, yeah. So that's it for part one. Hope you enjoyed the conversation with Mike Wachholder. Mike Wasserman and I will do our typical wrap up at the end of part two, which we will release next week. We're happy you joined us for our podcasting adventure for this week. We hope you found the last hour interesting and thought-provoking. We have two small requests. If you have any questions about what we discussed, suggestions about the topics or potential guests, get in touch with us. Our email address is bela.and.mike 
at gmail.com. Hey, and if you like what we're doing, hit the subscribe button on your podcasting app. It's free. Or even better, hey, tell one of your friends you really enjoy this and uh, get them to listen as well. Signing off from upstate New York. Hey, Mike, see you next week. Hey, thanks, Bela. I'm really looking forward to part two. That's it from over here in Münster, Germany. Have a great week. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.